Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Grace. We're really glad that you're here. I want to give a shout out, of course, to all of those joining us online. We're so glad that you are, and as well as those who are physically present at Saratoga, at Half Moon, and Latham. We're so excited to be a part of what God is doing uh, at and through Grace Fellowship. Well, we tackle a really interesting subject today, one that has plagued humanity for eons of time, this whole question of evil and suffering. In the exclusive biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson, the author of that biography, writes about an incident that happened in the 13th year of this iconic and inspirational CEO of Apple. And uh, I'm going to quote it to you. I printed it out from the book. Even though they were not fervent about their faith, Jobs' parents wanted him to have a religious upbringing. So they took him to the Lutheran church most Sundays. That came to an end when he was 13. In July 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a pair of starving children in Biafra. Jobs took it to Sunday school and confronted the church's pastor. If I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor answered, yes, God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out the life cover and asked, well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about it. Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. You know... I believe that reaction is typical of a lot of people when it comes to this issue we're looking at today of pain and suffering in the world. I suppose of all the questions that have plagued the human mind through the centuries, this may be the most troubling. Why does God allow pain and suffering? We're in a series called Big Questions About Life, and this happens to be the question that we've come to today. Now, there are two common approaches to this dilemma that I hope we can dispense with right up front because they are both really misguided. You may want to take note of these because they're really common errors people make. One is to deny the reality of evil and suffering. In other words, contrary to what you may believe or all appearances, uh, evil suffering just isn't real. The cult of Christian science teaches this. By the way, I've always felt that was one of the most unfortunate names ever given to a movement, Christian science, because in this case, it's neither Christian nor is it science. But anyway, that's what it's called. And it was founded by Mary Baker Eddy, and she said reality is purely spiritual, and the material world is an illusion. In other words, That suffering, that pain, that hardship you think you have, it's really just an illusion. And that's the official teaching of the church. Well, there have been lots of people through the ages that have 
tried to insist that as bad as you think things are, they aren't really that bad. There are people who still deny that the Nazis murdered millions of Jewish people during the Holocaust. And there are those who insist that everyone who's killed in war, not just soldiers, not just combatants, but adults and children as well, somehow just had it coming to them. Bottom line, they really deserved it. By the way, that's kind of the attitude that Job's friends had. You may remember their names, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. What a group they were. They believed that this world dispensed justice equally. In other words, you basically get what you deserve. So if you're suffering today, it's on you completely. Well, I hope we could agree right up front that that is a ridiculous, implausible view. Now, we are going to note in a minute, so please hear this part, that it is true that you and I bring some suffering on ourselves. That is true. But that should be no reflection on God's goodness in those particular cases. But not all suffering is brought on by ourselves, particularly when it comes to things like children who are abused or children who starve during droughts, famines, plagues, wars, etc. So I hope we can dispense with this erroneous approach right up front. Evil is real and it is pervasive. And to deny the reality of evil seems to me to be an escapist mentality. But there's a second erroneous approach to this dilemma that a lot of people take. Again, I want to just dispense with it right up front so we can move on. That is to deny the reality of God. Boy, this is one I've heard a lot. In talking with people through the years, people say, you know, I'm really struggling believing in God. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of all the evil and suffering in the world. You know, all the bad things. I just, I pastor, I just can't believe there's a God with all the evil in the world today. Well, that's an interesting position people take. And I'm here to tell you, it is a logically indefensible position. Think about it like this. Go with me here on the reasoning. If you say there's evil in the world, then logically, I assume you believe there's good in the world as well, right? And if you say there's evil, and if you say there's good, then that means you have to have some kind of moral law by which you make those discernments, those decisions, those evaluations on what is evil and what is good. I mean, without some standard, how do you do that? Without some moral law, how do you determine, well, this action is evil and this action is good? So if you agree there is some moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. I mean, where did the moral law law come from? Did it create itself? So follow the logic of this. If there is no God then there is no moral law giver. And if there's no moral law giver, 
then there is no moral law. And if there is no moral law, then there is no good. And if there is no good, there is no evil. I hope you see the logic and the rationale there. To put it differently, evil only exists in the context of good. So good and evil means there has to be a moral law, and moral law means there has to be a moral law giver. Moral law can't just create itself. Morals don't exist if there is no God. So if there's no God, there's no basis for claiming something as evil as good, because that's just your opinion after all. All moral judgments ultimately point back to a moral law giver. Let me illustrate this. Richard Dawkins is a popular name in atheistic circles, popular writer. Books have sold quite well in this generation. One of the best known, outspoken, most militant atheists, I would say, of this generation. And he makes the following statement. You can find this online. You can Google this. It's a kind of a classic statement he made, the universe, and I'm quoting now, the universe we observe has no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now, I don't know what you think about that statement. Obviously, I don't agree with his statement because I believe there is a God, and I believe we're more than just a collection of molecules or DNA. But you know what I like about Richard Dawkins? He's being consistent. He's being consistent with his worldview. He is acknowledged, he has the integrity to acknowledge that because he believes there is no God, then therefore there is no evil and there is no good. He is being totally consistent because you have no basis for a value system other than society itself or your own subjective opinions. Let me again illustrate this. I heard about one apologist who illustrated this point in a very dramatic fashion. He was at Oxford University in a forum, and a young student stood up and challenged him. The young man was saying he did not believe in evil. He did not believe in good. He was a fan of Richard Dawkins, and he did not believe in God. And so the apologist said, well, sir, if I were to bring a one-year-old little baby up here and take a butcher knife and just on a whim, just for my own pleasure, I carved that little one-year-old baby up into pieces, would you say that what I have done is morally wrong? True story. The apologist said the young student began to kind of draw circles with his toe on the carpet like this. And after an awkwardly long pause, he looked up and said, sir, I wouldn't like what you've done, but I couldn't say that it was morally wrong. And there was a gasp in the audience. But how could it be morally wrong if there is no God? So before we go any further, I just want to nail this down, that two things we can agree on. Evil is real. It really does exist, and it's pervasive, and God really exists. 
but I just want to say to any would-be atheist out there, if you don't believe in God, please be consistent and quit bellyaching about all the evil in the world because you have no basis for calling anything evil or immoral if there is no God. Now, with those two things out of the way, I want to get now to the heart of today's question. Here it is. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why does he allow pain and suffering? I learned a long time ago not to give glib answers to this, and here's why. In my experience, I believe that most people ask this question not theoretically, but personally. Here's what I mean. I think they ask the question when they themselves are hurting or someone they love is really hurting. So it's not a theoretical question. It's personal, and that should impact the way we approach it. When it's your job that's been eliminated, when it's your child that has a disease, when it's your marriage that is failing or has failed, when it's your health that's breaking, glib theoretical answers just don't cut it. As someone said long ago, people don't care how much you know so they know how much you care. And I really care. I do. I care about you. I care about where you're going. I care about the quality of your life. I care about your beliefs and your purpose and your destiny, who you are as a person. I really care, and I'm unashamed of that. So I'm not about to stand up here like a brain on a stick and try to give you glib answers to this very difficult personal question. I'm not going to do it. I want you to know that everything I say is said out of a broken heart. Here's why. Because I've lived long enough now to know that pain is real. I feel it. I hurt. And I've got people I deeply care about who are hurting horribly in these days. So everything I say is out of a broken heart. But I do want us to touch on the sources of evil and suffering. And particularly if you're a Christ follower today and you're listening to this, I want you to be equipped. I want you to know biblically what are the sources for suffering in this world. So let's quickly walk through them. Number one, sometimes we suffer because of our own sin and stupidity. We really do. If we embezzle or lie, we can lose our job and maybe even go to prison. That's just the way it happens. If we're promiscuous and break our marriage vows, we could not only contract a disease, but you're probably going to wreck and probably lose your marriage. If we overeat, abuse our bodies, if we smoke, if we abuse alcohol, or drugs of some kind, if we don't get enough rest, if we don't get enough exercise, trust me, trust me, there's gonna be some physical suffering as a direct result of that. And what's more, let me speak to your relationships. If you consistently disrespect people, 
if you are consistently unkind and rude to people, if you are consistently self-centered and selfish and narcissistic, I'm gonna tell you right now, you are going to suffer relationally. You say, Pastor, it sounds like you believe in karma, man. Well, no, I don't believe in karma. Karma is not a Christian teaching, but I'll tell you something that is the closest to karma within Christian theology, and that is this principle God has put in the universe of sowing and reaping. It's real. It's real. Paul taught it clearly in the Bible. We tend to reap what we sow. So there is this cause and effect at work. And sometimes we make some stupid decisions and we reap bad consequences from them. Way back in March, when our gym closed, I discovered all anew how much I love being on a bicycle. And so I dusted the bicycle off down in the basement, got it out, hadn't ridden it a long, long time, got it out on the road and started doing a, a lot of riding just to get some exercise. And one day back in June, I started off on a bike ride, and I thought, eh, this is going to be a short ride today. It was, I thought, I, I won't go as far as I've been going. So I didn't take any water with me, like I usually do. I didn't take a credit card or any money to buy anything. I just thought, it's just going to be a quick little ride. I'll just be out and back. But I felt good. It was a beautiful, bright, sunshiny day. The sun was, was really warm, and, and it just kept getting warmer and warmer. It, it actually ended up being one of the hottest days of the year. And so I kept going and going and going toward Vermont, east on Route 7, and just kept going and going, just pedaling and pedaling. Just think of Forrest Gump, okay? Just think of Forrest when he was running, you know, just, I don't know why I'm doing this. I was just pedaling the bike, just going. Thought it was going to be a short ride, but it turned into a long ride. Before I knew it, I was looking at the Vermont border, the sign that says, welcome to Vermont. And I sent a picture of it back to Debbie just so she would know where in the world I was. Well, I thought, man, I've gone 32 miles here in one direction. That means I got 32 miles to go back, right? And I've got no water. What a brilliant move that was, right? <laughs> Nothing to buy any water with. And I'm, sweat is pouring off my face like a faucet at this point. It's getting hot. There's no relief from the sweltering sun. There's no shade anywhere on that route. And so I started back, and as I'm going up about a two-mile incline on the way back, I literally was so dehydrated and hurting, I literally remember saying, I hurt. I hurt. I just blurted it out. I was tempted to stop at a house and just ask for a glass of water, total stranger. But my pride wouldn't let me. And so I kept slugging along, slugging along, losing, losing, losing this hydration the whole way. I had weighed just before I left home. And when I got back, I just happened to jump on the scale. I had lost nine pounds just from dehydration on that trip. Now, everybody look at me right now. Everybody look at me right now. Are you looking at me? That was stupid. Now, if I had passed out or had some kind of serious medical problem because of that action, that's on me. I chose it. That's not on God. 
And sometimes we make stupid decisions and bring suffering on ourselves, but most of the time, I believe, it's not a direct result. Our suffering is not a direct result of our sin. The second source of suffering in the world is sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin and stupidity. Now, this is a big one. Please listen up. If you're mugged on the street, you're suffering because of someone else's sin. Your child might rebel, and as a parent, you suffer. Your mate may be unfaithful or abusive. Your parents may deceive and disown you. And when you hurt, believe me, it is often the result of other people's sins. Now, I don't have any hard statistical data to back this up, but I'm going to make a guess. Anecdotally, just on observation, I believe that 95% of the suffering in the world is a result of our own human choices. And yet people blame it on God. You remember the story I started with? Steve Jobs, the children on the front of Life magazine, he blamed that on God. But you know what? The truth of the matter is that we have enough food on this planet to feed every man, woman, boy, and girl well over 3,000 calories a day, no problem at all. But it's because of our own selfishness, our own irresponsibility that people are starving when God has provided us plenty of food to go around. Now, you need to get this part if you really want to understand why there's so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world. God has given us this thing called free will. Very important that we understand this. And with your free will, in fact, do me a favor. Would you just look at your hand? Pick any hand you want. Right hand, left hand. Just pick your hand. Look at your hand. You can take that hand and you can pick up a gun and you can shoot someone and kill someone with it. Or you can take that very same hand. You can feed a starving person. Your choice. But what is ridiculous, what is unfair is if I take this hand and kill somebody and think, oh God, why do you allow evil and suffering in the world? You say, well, pastor, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever do that. Really? As a pastor, I've literally, I'm not making this up, I've had people say to me, in a conversation who had just committed adultery, just unfaithful to their spouse, their family blew up, their marriage blew up, they were living in horrible pain now. I've had people look at me and go, why did God allow that to happen? What? What, what planet are you living on? There is a principle of sowing and reaping at work, and often we bring stuff on ourselves, and we also suffer enormously because of other people's sin. I hope we get that. Third, one of the sources is sometimes we suffer because of the enemy's attacks. Job is a great example of this. He suffered bankruptcy, simultaneous death of 10 of his children. He suffered, suffered physical misery. It wasn't because of his own sin. It wasn't God's discipline. It was partially because of other people's sin, because he did have some people steal things from him. But the Bible is clear. Satan was the one behind this. Satan was attacking him. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul caused his 
physical problems, a messenger of Satan. God permitted those things to happen to Paul, to Job, but he did not cause them. Now, I know that if you do not have a Christian worldview, maybe on your journey of faith and belief, you just, hey, that's something I, I, I just can't believe in. The idea of a personal being known as the devil or Satan is probably laughable to you. I, I get that. I get that. It was probably laughed at and, uh, by a professor somewhere. Uh, you probably had people scoff at that idea. It's certainly easy to make fun of it on Saturday Night Live and all kinds of other plays. Comedians have a field day with this. And here's the reason why. Because the real devil in the Bible is nothing like Dante's Inferno. It's nothing like the guy in the red suit with the pitchfork and horns. It's nothing like the popular caricature. In fact, Satan is delighted at how he's been misportrayed. The Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light. But I understand, if you don't have a biblical or a Christian worldview, that's just a laughable thing to you. But let me tell you, I do believe in a personal being called Satan for a number of reasons. But can I tell you the main reason I do? Because Jesus believed in him. Jesus believed in him. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talking said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. And just a couple of chapters later, Jesus talks about this enemy who is bent on killing, stealing, destroying. And even though you may not believe in his reality, it doesn't make him any less real. Trust me, he's wreaking a lot of havoc in this world today. But there's a fourth and final source I want us to look at, and that is sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen world that has drifted significantly from God's intention. Paul, the apostle, speaks to this in a book in the Bible called Romans, chapter 8, and he says, the whole creation has been groaning. What an interesting thought. The whole creation is out of kilter. Something's wrong. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, the problem of suffering goes back to the garden. It goes back to the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve introduced the sin virus into the world and everything is out of sync from then on, not as God originally designed it. So there are droughts and floods, there are tornadoes and hurricanes, there are heat waves and cold snaps, viruses, fires that destroy. The air is polluted, the water is contaminated, the ground is poisoned, everything's out of balance. And Paul says it's like birth pangs leading up until Christ returns. Now, here's why that's significant. Christian, you go, big deal, big deal. What does that mean to me? Here's what it means. Christian, are you listening? You're living in an in-between time right now. You're not living in the world that God designed. No, 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 it's far from that. Nor are you yet living in the world that God will bring in when he consummates all things, new heaven, new earth. 
We live in that crazy in-between time. Here's how Jesus described the gap period in between. He said the rain falls on the just and the unjust. What does that mean? That means that the same knife that'll cut a loaf of bread will also cut my finger, and I can have pain, suffering. That means that the force of gravity that holds me to the earth will not be suspended if I jump out of a tree or out of a building. I need to be aware of that. It means that tornadoes will hit churches just as well as brothels. It means that cancer will strike adults as well as children. We need to be aware of the world in which we're living. And God never promised us exemption from these things. Now, sometimes God intervenes in this broken, fallen world, and he suspends or violates the laws that govern it, and we call that, when God does, we, we call that a miracle. That's what a miracle is. And we wish God did that more often than he does. But Jesus was very straight about this, very honest. He said, look, in this world, John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. So those are the sources of the evil and the suffering and the pain that we have in this world. But again, let me say, I don't believe most people give a rip about that. I really don't. You all are listening very nicely today, and I'm sure online some people are kind of tuned in and zeroing in on this and getting some information. But you know what? People don't give a rip about that. You know what people want to know when they're hurting? Does God care? That's what they want to know. Does God care about me? And what, what would God want me to know? This is what people really, really are interested in when they're hurting deeply. What would God want me to know right now in the middle of this that would help me? And so for just a few minutes as we wrap up, I want to, and I mean very quickly, mention three things that consistently help me through the pain I suffer. And it will not take your pain away, but I believe this will give you comfort and encouragement and even inspiration no matter what you're going through today. Number one, please remember this, God is close to you when you're hurting. Wait a minute, Pastor, I thought God was always there. He is, he is. But I find it interesting that the psalmist in Psalm 34 said the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Nowhere in Scripture does it say God is close in that kind of way to people who are soaring in their spirit and everything's going their way. They just hit it big, baby. But Scripture says, and it makes this point, to emphasize God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You're not alone. Just as God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, I tell you, he is with you today in whatever you're going through. And even though you may feel horribly lonely, I want to say it again, you are not alone God is there with you, and he draws close to those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Second, 
Jesus is hurting with you. I don't know about you, but I get a little cynical sometimes when a brother or sister or somebody will come up and they just heard maybe that I'm going through something hard and they'll say, you've heard it, haven't you? I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Maybe. But most of the time, got to be honest, most of the time I want to go, no, you don't. Not really. You're not in my shoes. You're not in my situation. Hey, I appreciate the effort. I believe your motive is awesome. High five. But you don't feel my pain. But there is one who does. He's your high priest, and he's called Jesus our Lord. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says about him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And notice then this enormous inspirational challenge. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Think about it. This passage says that Jesus, your high priest, is able to understand and sympathize with you. He's experienced the pain of this world. His closest friend betrayed him, abandoned him. He was falsely charged and unjustly sentenced to death. He was physically tortured. He knows what it's like to hurt. He died a humiliating death. He knows what it's like to be scorned and spit on and scoffed at. Mark this down. When you hurt, he hurts. And even though you may not see it or know it right now, he is always, and I mean always, weaving a design in your life where he wants to bring good out of that hard stuff you're going through. He is determined not to waste your pain. And finally, one final thing. I know this is not spiritual pixie dust that makes it all just go away and so, oh, the pain's all gone, Pastor. Thanks for that magic bullet. That's not what this is. But I want to tell you this has gotten me through so many hard times. Here it is. The pain will be over soon. Paul says it like this in Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, we can endure a lot of pain when we know there's a reward on the way. There's a payback for being faithful during the testing. Let's imagine that you're horribly afraid of heights, and I give you an interesting offer. I say, look, there's a plane over here. Pilot's ready to go. Take anybody up to do a jump. Parachutes are all ready. Everything's been tested. I'll give you $10 to go up and jump out of that plane. You'd laugh. You'd go, no way. But let's suppose that I could up it to $1,000 a couple of you might take me up on that because either you've jumped before or you're not afraid of heights that much or you're just willing to go on an adventure. But let's suppose that I said, I'll give you a million dollars if you jump out of this plane over here and you believe that I can make good on that. You know what I think? 
I think 95% of you would take me up on the offer. You see, there's a point, there's a point where you're willing to go through the discomfort, the fear, the danger because of the ultimate benefit. There's a reason to hold on because there's a glory that awaits you in the end. And that's, that's the perspective of heaven, don't you see? The perspective of heaven is not to deny your pain in this life. No. The Bible's realistic about pain. It never denies it. But think about this. You may go through 70 years of pain on this planet, and it is just horrible. And some days it's so bad, you wish you'd never been born. But listen, in heaven, after 7 trillion, 879 billion, 432,655,768 years of perfect bliss in the presence of God, and you're just getting started. All of that pain on earth will seem about like the inconvenience of a flat tire. That's, that's the perspective of heaven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And finally, John describes it this way in Revelation 21. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Wow. Everything new. Think about that. That means no more starving children. No more loved ones dying. No more broken hearts. No more tear-stained divorce papers. And again, I don't know about you, but when I'm really hurting, remembering that is like spiritual oxygen for my lungs. When I feel the pain is too great and I just can't go another mile, remembering that gives me the lift and the living water I need to keep on pedaling, man. Keep on going. God's got something great in store for you who know him, who are called by his name. It's worth hanging on. Father, thank you for the inspiration, the encouragement we get from feasting on your word. Thank you that you've not left us alone, that you hurt with us, that the pain will be over soon. Oh, we revel in that thought. And I pray for that person who's hurting deeply today, that they would take such comfort in knowing you love them and you truly care. In Jesus' name, amen.